Am I on? Did uh, the gentleman in the back mute me while I was singing? He promised he would. Okay, good. All right. Uh, I don't know exactly where to begin other than to introduce myself. My name is Dan Hornock. Uh, I used to be a pastor for 33 years at a church I started down in Salt Lake. Uh, it's called Grace Community Bible Church. And then last September, I retired. And then you might remember, sometime last fall, I can't remember, remember if it was October or November, I came up and spoke. Well, anyway, I'm back, okay? Uh, when I spoke last fall, I was looking forward to having my knee replaced, and I did in December. And things were going great until last week, and something happened to where uh, I tweaked something. I don't understand, but it's a nerve right back here <laughs> that I feel it all the way down to my toe. It's called a sciatic nerve, and it's killing me. I promise I'm not faking, okay? I'm not faking, but that's why I'm going to have to sit down because uh, there's no way that I can stand uh, for however long I speak. And it's Trust me, it's not going to be as long as a lot of pastors, okay? <laughs> um, it really is a, a, a joy to be back here because your church is so similar to ours. There's just a wonderful spirit here. There's a freedom to just be yourself and, and express your love to the Lord and, and watch the kids run around. Uh, I love that because a lot of the times they're my grandkids running around, <laughs> And uh, they have permission to, to let the church be their home. And that's what ought to be true for all the kids in the church. This is their home. Uh, there is a point at which maybe there might be a little more running than some people might like. But uh, I would never put the brakes on that for me. Because I, uh, I want kids to know that this is home. But it, it's where people gather to focus on the Lord. Now, there was some confusion about my uh, family, so let me clear that up. I might muddy the waters, though. I grew up in a home where my father was a pastor. There were six kids, five boys, one girl, and when we became adults, all of us became ministers. Even my sister married a minister. Okay, We all went to a seminary in Dallas called Dallas Theological Seminary, and we're all ministers. Uh, my oldest brother, Ken, uh, pastored a church in Salt Lake called Mid-Valley Bible Church. He retired a number of years ago, and he's the gentleman who has come up here and has spoken at your family camp. Uh, the reason why I mentioned, or Eric mentioned my twin brother, is my twin brother actually looks more like Ken than I do. My twin brother is five inches taller than me. Uh, I also like to add 50 pounds heavier than me. <laughs> and uh, in the, the Sunday school class before this, we were talking about heaven, all of us making comments. And uh, the, the, the question I have is, what is the age of my resurrected body going to be? Am I going to look like in heaven like I look like now? And that the Bible seems to indicate that we probably will, which my twin brother has joyfully told me, that uh, for, five, for, for all eternity, he's going to be five inches taller than me. And he always likes to point that out. Uh, but uh, I'm okay with that because when I fly coach, 
it feels like I'm flying first class, all right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know how uh, tall, larger people do it. I, I, I tell my brothers, when I'm flying, uh, I, I'm always thinking of them because they just keep making the seats closer and closer together. And my one of my older brothers, who's a really big guy, I also tell him when I fly, thank God I'm not flying next to him. Okay? <laughs> well, anyway, enough about my family. Uh, some months ago, maybe it's been a year ago, I, uh, I was watching a news program, and it's called The Five. Uh, I tape it in the afternoon, watch it in the evening. Well, anyway, um, uh, it, it's about where five people talk about the news of the day, okay? Uh, well, anyway, on that particular day, in that particular segment, they were talking about things they regret in life. And uh, they were all mentioning things they wish they could go back and do over again. And one of the individuals who uh, is on it is a woman named Dana Perino. It's a female. And she said that what she regretted in life was that uh, when she was younger, she didn't take wearing sunscreen more seriously. And I think a lot of us can probably identify with that. Some of us grew up, myself included, not uh, really understanding or appreciating the damage that overexposure to the sun can cause. Some of us did. But the reality is that at a certain time in your life, the damage has been done. It's just baked into the skin, and the opportunity for any kind of prevention is over. And with that comes a sense of regret. I think like, like uh, every one of us here, I've got regrets in my life. I do. Uh, there are some, many, I choose not to dwell on for my own mental and emotional health. I can't do anything about it. I can't undo the past. I, I can't unscramble an egg, okay? So, so I, I just don't think about those things. But then there are others that I think about and I learn from. And one of the regrets I have has to do with uh, my ministry and that is that during my ministry, I knew about a truth, and I benefited from it. But I did not share it enough with the people I was a pastor of, so that they could have the same kind of benefit. And for that, I have genuine regret. I honestly do. But since I've got the opportunity to speak to you now, I want to address that. And where that truth is found is in Luke chapter 11. And so let me encourage you to open your Bible. If you use an electronic Bible, turn it on. If your Bible is printed, digital, whatever, uh, I want you to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 11. And I really want to encourage you to do that. I, I know Pastor Jim has got to encourage you to bring a Bible. Because the fact is, it's all, when you listen to God's Word... It's a, a whole lot better if you can see God's Word. And I don't mean print it on a screen. I'm talking about holding it in your hand so that you can know God has a Word for you. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. The, the truth I want to share with you has to do with our spiritual battle in life. Uh, we often call it a battle, but actually it's a war. And the reason why is because... It is something we are going to struggle with for the rest of our lives. It is not 
going to go away. And uh, when we understand the truth that I want to share with you and properly respond to it, it it can be all the difference between success or failure, uh, freedom or slavery. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, So that you're not in suspense as to what the truth is, it's simply this, that in our spiritual battle to do what is right, we cannot be neutral. And I know you can summarize that even into a tighter statement, but let me just state it again. In our spiritual battle to do what is right, we cannot be neutral. And I know when you hear that, you say, well, that doesn't sound all that life-changing. And uh, I know. But when you understand the context from which that truth comes, it is a game-changer. It can cause you and I to take a second, third, fourth, maybe even a fifth look at a decision we're about to make when we know that we shouldn't. Uh, The context for this truth starts in verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. And so by now, uh, you should have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 11. Anybody not there, we need to wait. I always do that at the church I'm at. Okay, Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And by the way, the reason why I'm here is, uh, if I didn't mention it, I retired in September. And that's why I have the wonderful joy of being up here. Okay? So Luke chapter 11, verse 14, it says this. It says, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Now, I know in some of your Bibles... Instead of the word demon, it's the word devil. And if, if that's how it reads in your Bible, that is misleading. Because the fact is, there's only one devil, and that's Satan. And he has many followers who are called demons, but sometimes they're called devils. And the reason why is because the meaning of the word devil. The word devil means slanderer. And that is what Satan and his demons do. They slander believers before God. And that's what they're doing right now. Demons are slandering you and I before God. They're saying the worst things about us. And the unfortunate thing is we give them all the ammunition that they need. Uh, Here a demon is living inside a man uh, with the result that he's mute. Mute means he can't speak. But the reason he can't speak is because he cannot hear. So he can't hear And he can't speak. Matthew records this same event. And he says that the man, uh, in addition to not being able to hear or speak, he also cannot see. But when Jesus orders the demon out of the man, the man immediately is able to see, hear, and speak. And the Bible says that everyone who, who saw what happened, they were amazed except for what we read in the next verse, verse 15. It says, But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Uh, Jesus always had his critics, and here there were some who, they can't bring themselves to admit what Jesus had just done. Uh, Some of them said that uh, what Jesus had done is uh, 
It was something he did with the help of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is another name for Satan. It means the prince of demons. All right. But then there were others who said that uh, Jesus just happened to be in the right place at the right time the demon came out. And so he got the credit. In other words, it was all, the, all a coincidence. And so what they were doing is they were demanding that Jesus give additional proof. They wanted a sign, which refers to a miracle, which would be the proof that Jesus had, in fact, cast the demon out of this individual. Um, sometimes it's best to ignore your critics. And Jesus did that on a lot of occasions. He didn't answer every critic because uh, he didn't want to get down on their level. But sometimes he answered them. And on this occasion, he had to answer them. And it's the, re- the reason why is because of uh, what they were saying about him. They were saying that he had performed a miracle. He did something in the power of Satan. And I, I told you, Matthew, he records this same event. When Matthew records it, he tells us that that accusation, that Jesus did something in the power of Satan, that accusation is so objectionable, it's unforgivable. And uh, for that reason, Jesus has to say something, and here's what he said. Look with me at verse 17. It says, But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Now, the kingdom in this verse refers to a world system of which Satan is over. The house in this verse refers to the body out of which the demon came. All of which means Satan is over a kingdom. It's a world system of which he dominates. Satan is over a kingdom and his demons inhabit bodies. Verse 18. Jesus goes on, he says, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. Jesus responds to their accusation that uh, he didn't perform the miracle. He didn't give the man the ability to see, hear, and speak. That he must have done it in the the power of Satan. Jesus' response is to say, uh, that accusation is illogical and it's inconsistent. It's illogical because no one who becomes successful turns around and does everything they can to destroy the success they have. Someone might do that, but you'd say they're crazy, they're insane. It's illogical. And then he says it's also inconsistent Because if they're going to say that Jesus did this in the power of Satan, then they'd have to say the same thing about their own children because that's that's how their sons made their living. Their sons were exorcists. They made their living by casting out demons. My first exposure to uh, organized football was when I was in eighth grade and I became a proud member of the Kearns Cobras. Kearns was the town in which I grew up in. And Cobra, that was the mascot for our, uh, our, our football team. It was uh, a Little League football team, and it was just when Little League football was getting started. The Little League baseball had been around forever, it seemed like, but Little League football was just getting started. And that eighth grade year, my team had a perfect record, unblemished. We never won a game, okay? 
Not, not one stinking game. And we lost in the craziest way possible. We would uh, play the games on Saturday morning, but we'd practice on Tuesday and Thursday. And on Tuesday, when we'd get together after our most recent loss, we'd all say to one another, we didn't lose. We gave the game away. There's no way they beat us. And that's what we'd say to one another to convince ourselves that we weren't as bad as we, in fact, were. But uh, what these people had convinced themselves of was that there was no way Jesus could have cast a demon out of this man. Uh, and even though they saw it, they refused to believe it. They just flat out refused. And so what Jesus does is he moves from explaining what he had just done to giving a warning about their refusal to believe. And so he says this, verse 20. He says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Everyone who witnessed the miracle that Jesus performed, casting the demon out of this man, should have come to this conclusion. That the kingdom that God had promised to Israel in the Old Testament was ready to be established. And that Jesus was the one who could do it. Uh, But because these people refused to believe, Jesus tells them two stories. The two stories are called parables, and what the parables do is they illustrate a truth that uh, in our spiritual battle to do what is right, we cannot be neutral. Now, the first story Jesus tells, uh, we'll call it the story of the strong man, and I want to read the story, and then I'll uh, go back and make some comments. Look at verse 21, here's the story. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And by the way, uh, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Translation. I don't know what translation you're using. Hopefully, uh, you can still follow along if you're using another translation. Well, anyway, the strong man in this story is the demon uh, who lives inside the man's body. But uh, behind the demon is Satan, who the demon serves. So the strongest man in this story is Satan. Uh, Jesus says regarding Satan, he's fully armed. And you might have a translation that says he's armed to the teeth. And that that really is the idea. He is fully armed. Uh, From what we know about Satan, he's the most powerful being that God has created. And yet, uh, he embodies all that is evil. He was not evil when God created him. Okay? He was perfect. But he became evil when he chose to rebel against God. And today, Satan is the most powerful evil being that God has ever created. Uh, And yet, his weapon of choice is to appear as an angel of light, which which he often does, which explains why good people, And I mean this sincerely. It explains why good people can follow Jesus, and yet the Jesus they are following is not Jesus at all. It's Satan himself. I live in Utah. 
where that's happening throughout the state. Now, I'm careful about who I say that to, that, that maybe the Jesus you're following is not the Jesus you think you're following. It may be Satan himself. I'm careful about who I say that to. But that, nevertheless, is a biblical, undeniable fact. But here's another fact, and this is what Jesus wants to get across in the story. And that is, yes, Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. And Jesus proved that by commanding the demon to come out of this man. And and in a sense, Jesus says, I did it with my little finger. In the last uh, five years, I've begun to realize I have arthritis in my hands. If I use them a lot, and I don't want you to think with my bad knee and sciatic nerve and arthritis in my hands, <laughs> I am, uh, I'm just, you know, the walking dead. Okay, I'm not, I like to think of myself as really healthy. Uh, but anyway, when, when my arthritis is bad, my youngest grandson, AJ, can swat the top of my hand and it can be so painful, it will send me into these out-of-control spasms. He thinks it's funny, because sometimes when he does it, I'll literally get on my knees, because it just hurts so bad. And I'd like to think that enough of us here can identify with it. I'm not faking, okay? Again, I'm not faking with these stories. Uh, I am so thankful that Jesus doesn't have arthritis, okay? Uh, Satan is no match for him. But even if Jesus did have arthritis, he could still defeat Satan with his tiny little finger. But you know, of course, God doesn't have a body with hands and tiny little fingers. We know that. You know, common sense says uh, this is a metaphor. That's a figure of speech to, to teach a comparison. And uh, the comparison is that, yes, Satan is strong. But Jesus is stronger. And that serves as the baseline, okay, the baseline from which we go to war in our battles to do what is right and not give in to temptation. When it comes to Satan's power, we need to be wise to his tactics. We need to be aware of his power, but we don't live in fear of him, not at all. Which also means that in the heat of temptation, in every wicked decision we might make, you and I have the ability to say no. In this battle to do what's right, you and I have the ability to say no. And you know, I know that. I've known that all my life. I teach that. But the question that uh, maybe you're asking as I ask myself is if I have the ability to say no... Why don't I say no? Ask yourself that question. In the battle to do what is right, why don't, we, why don't we always do what's right? Well, the reason why is because maybe we've deceived ourselves into thinking that in the spiritual battle that we're in, it's not that big of a thing if we remain neutral. Or maybe we can be indifferent that's not that big of a deal. Some people can get serious about it. I'm not. Or we might deceive ourselves into thinking that we have the ability to manage the damage that any terrible decision we might make. But what Jesus says in this story is he says we're either with him or we're against him. 
We're either doing his work or we're destroying his work. And the next story tells us why we need to choose a side and be all in on the side of Jesus. Uh, the next story, uh, it's, it doesn't have a title, but I'm going to title it the story of the empty house. Look at what it says, verse 24. Here's the second story. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. I don't know how waterless places is translated in your Bible. However it's translated, it doesn't refer to some spooky alternative universe in which demons live. It just simply refers to a desert. Where because there's very little water, very little life lives. And because there's very little water and life in a desert, there are not many bodies in which a demon can inhabit. And one of the things we know from God's word is demons desire to live in a body. They do. Their body of choice is a human body. But if they cannot find a human body, they will settle for any body. I'm talking about the body of an animal. And yet I've read where one commentator was of the opinion that if they cannot find a human body, an animal body in which to live, they will settle for a tree or a plant. But that's all speculation. But here, because this demon cannot find any body, in which to dwell, it makes the decision to return to the body it had been forced to leave. And when it returns, it could not have found a more welcoming situation. Look at verse 25. It says, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. When the demon returns to the house, that had, the body that had once been its home, he finds it clean. Which is nice, because no one, not even a demon wants to live in a dirty house. And parents, if you have kids that keep a messy room, you can biblically say, not even a demon would want to live in this room. Okay? Uh, the demon finds the body's all clean. But what is even nicer, and this is by implication, he finds the body empty, which is great for the demon, but horrific for the man. Because by himself, the man was no match for the demon. We agree on that? The demon living inside the man caused the man to not be able to see, hear, or speak. He's no match for the demon. Problem is, he has not invited someone else into his life who is stronger than the demon either. All of which means his life is worse in the end than it was in the beginning. Verse 26, it says, then, it's talking about the demon, then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. You know, if the number seven were any other number, I'd just dismiss it as an actual number. But uh, I think many of us know the number seven is the number of perfection. It may be 
And this is the story. I didn't tell the story. Jesus did. It may be that when the demon returns to the body it had been forced to leave, it takes with him seven additional demons to reestablish control over the body. But then it may be that uh, the demon just simply uses every resource within its power to retake control of the demon. And he does. That's the idea. Which is why the condition of this man is worse at the end of his life than it was at the beginning. Now, here's the obvious question. And that is, what happened to this man, can it happen to me? Can it happen to us? Or maybe to ask it a a little more accurately, can I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, be inhabited by a demon? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. You and I cannot have a demon living inside us because when you and I become a believer, God the Holy Spirit lives inside us. It's called indwelling. However, while you and I as believers cannot have a demon living inside us because the Holy Spirit lives there and he doesn't share space with anyone. He doesn't. While we cannot be indwelt by a demon, you and I as believers can certainly be influenced by a demon. And when that takes place, it is almost impossible to take back control short of God working in us in a miraculous way. But I want you to know that uh, that influence only comes by invitation. Uh, You say, well, how would I ever invite a demon into my life? Well, it might be because we've embraced that lie that in our spiritual battle to do what is right, we can be neutral. That's a lie, okay? Or it may be that uh, we're just kind of casually indifferent to our Christian life. Hey, we got our ticket to heaven. That's all that matters. Or it may be that we think, uh, yeah, I know there's certain things I shouldn't do, but I can manage it. And that's another lie. And we just keep telling these lies to ourselves and things just get worse and worse to where uh, we've given up so much of our life over to to demonic influence where it's almost impossible to take back control. I'm not going to say that every time we give up control of our life, seven demons rush in and take control. And I don't mean control. I'm talking exerting influence. Uh, I'm not going to say that. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to be that guy, that, that guest speaker that comes in and talks about sensational things. I'd like to stay within the parameters of God's Word. And I want you to keep me there. Okay, follow along in your Bible. Keep me within the Bible. I'm not saying that every time you and I give up control, demonic influence comes in and takes control. I'm not saying that. But I am saying I am of the opinion that there are gateways into our life whereby when we give up control, consciously give up control of our life, then it is the essence of Inviting demonic influence into our life. There's many. And I'm just going to mention a few. Okay, These, these are the ones that uh, I grew up with and have been around all my life. Okay, uh, One gateway by which demons enter our life is through drugs. 
when I was uh, in college, and it was in the uh, first half of the 70s, 71 to 75. My peers, those my age, they were experimenting with mind-altering drugs. It began in the 60s, and uh, I don't know that it ended, but you just didn't hear about it all that much after the middle of the 70s. It may be because that's when the Vietnam War ended. But anyway, uh, not coincidentally, at that same time, there was a spike in the interest and activity of demons. And if you, you lived through that time, you might remember that. It's, uh, it's when, for example, The Exorcist came out, that movie. Uh, it, it, it seemed like people were talking about spirits being possessed by demons. And all I'm saying is, is that if you and I give ourselves up to drugs, and maybe I ought to say the misuse of drugs to make it closer to home, then it's almost as if we are unlocking the front door of our life, turning on the porch light, hanging out a sign that says, welcome to any and all demonic influence. I believe that. I believe that. Another gateway by which we as believers can invite Demonic influence into our life is through the occult. I didn't say cult, C-U-L-T. I said occult, O-C-C-U-L-T. The word occult means dark, hidden, secret. It is the arena in which demons operate. And the fact is, if you find yourself in a place where it's dark... And there is a requirement of secrecy. You don't want anyone else to know that whether you realize it or not, you are coming close to entering into the arena of demonic activity. The first time I know I was in the presence of a demon was when I was on a deployment with the Air Force in Korea. I, I mentioned the last time I was here that for 25 years, of my 33-year ministry in uh, Salt Lake, I was a chaplain in the Utah Air National Guard. And our, uh, our mission was a tanker mission. We, they're, they're flying gas tanks. And so uh, we'd fly all over the world uh, to refuel planes. Well, anyway, uh, the benefit to me was is I got to make those trips. Well, one time I remember uh, in Korea, I and a friend went to a Korean village. And on the outskirts of this village was a shack in which there lived a shaman. And I don't know if you pronounce it shaman, shaman. Uh, correct me after the service, okay? Uh, but anyway, the shaman is the spiritual leader of the village, also known as a witch doctor. And tourists who would go to this village would have this, uh, this shaman read their palm and tell their fortune. Well, I remember standing about 25 yards from this shack, waiting for the shaman to come out. And when the shaman came out, I realized that it was an elderly woman. She couldn't be more than four feet tall. She was walking around like a dog on the porch on her hands and feet. And after she walked around on the porch, she sat down on a pillow. There are about uh, 30 people, well, maybe not that many, 20 people standing around the porch. And she looked at every one of them. And I still remember as her line of sight 
came to my line of sight. She stopped and she looked at me like a deer looks at you in the forest when it sees you. She never looked away and she never blinked. And the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I felt an evil that was tangible. And I knew I was staring into the face of someone who was indwelt, not influenced, indwelt by a demon. Uh, I can't tell you every place you're going to find a demon. Okay, I'm not. I can't. But I am going to say that if you find yourself in a place where there is a, there's kind of a tangible darkness. I'm not talking about darkness as opposed to the light outside. I'm talking about a darkness. And there's the requirement that maybe you don't want people to know about what you're doing. And so there's a desire to keep it hidden, to keep it secret. If that's where you find your place, self, then you need to get out of that space. Let me mention another gateway by which demons can exercise their influence, and it's through pornography. Um, in Jesus' day, it was believed that if you had sex with a temple prostitute, and I'm talking about the pagan temple, all right, then that was an act of worship. But what it actually was, was a close encounter with a demon who lived within the prostitute's body. Uh, and that explains why uh, pornography is more than just a physical addiction, mental, emotional addiction. Uh, it is an overexposure to demonic influence. It is. I believe that with all my heart. And it's why an addiction to pornography feels so much more than an addiction. Physical, mental, emotional. It's even more than that. It is you exposing yourself to the influence of demons. And once demons have that contact, they do everything in their power to refuse to give up control. Now, I could go on. There's other gateways, doors we could talk about. But I want to mention one more. And it's relatively new, but it may be the most influential of all. I'm talking about the Internet. Uh, the reason I mention the Internet is, is the other gateways in my life. I'm talking about drugs, occult, pornography. When I was growing up, like many of us, you had to literally hunt to find those doors. Okay? You had to go out and look for them. But today, you can find them in the palm of your hand. They're just one click away. And I'm not saying that we give up our smartphones or stay off the Internet. Although, I think, I know I could spend a lot less time on the Internet. You know, I like to read the news. And so, you know, I've, I, I find myself doing the crazy things that we all do. Just spending too much time there. And I'm not saying that, uh, that we give up the Internet. But I am saying we agree with the lesson and the warning of the two stories that Jesus just told. And that is that we agree, yes, Jesus is stronger than Satan. But we also agree that every inch we allow influence to come in our life makes it almost impossible 
to give up. And you know, I can hear someone thinking right now. And yes, I can hear people thinking. No, I can't. It's just that I know when I look at God's Word and I have certain thoughts, I can't be the only one having those thoughts, okay? And I can hear someone thinking, no one knows this, but I have given so much of my life over to the arena of demons, demonic influence, that... uh, I know a demon is not living inside me, but I, I just sense a darkness all the time. I know I'm a believer, but I feel like a fraud. I feel like a failure. Now, I want you to know, if, if those are thoughts that are going through your mind, I congratulate you. You know why? Because for you to come to that conclusion takes courage. And it takes honesty. And honesty is the arena in which God operates. Not in the darkness, not in the hidden secret things of life, but in the light, out in the open. And the good news is, if Jesus can restore someone's ability to see, hear, and speak, he can restore you to a life where you're not living under that influence all the time. But uh, here's what has to be done. Look at verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And I look at that and I say, where did this come from? Okay. Is this, list, is this woman listening to the same story? In my mind, I picture the, this woman. Any of you remember the, uh, the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Yes, okay. Well, anyway, when I, when I think of this woman, I think of that lady in the, the, the musical, the Yenta, okay, the, the elderly, short lady who's responsible for getting couples together, okay, the Yenta. Well, anyway, that's who I envision. And, and she's, she's thinking uh, that Jesus' mother must be so proud of him. Problem is, is her words don't match the urgency of what Jesus has been talking about. And so Jesus inserts himself and he says this. On the contrary, and I can hear it. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You know, there is a blessing whenever we hear God's word. There's a blessing to hearing this truth because there's always a blessing when we hear God's word. But in this situation, I think this is true for all, all the time, but, but more than ever for us today, the blessing is not in just hearing what we've heard. It's in the doing. Uh, it's in our response. And what, what Jesus is trying to stress is that in our battle... To do what is right, we cannot be neutral. We've got to choose a side. And we've got to be all in on the side that we choose. Again, if today this truth is more personal than you care to admit, let me again encourage you. Jesus already knows, okay? (laughs) Something I tell myself. I've got no secrets from Jesus. There's nothing I can do. In a dark, hidden place. 
He knows all about me. And he loves me. He still accepts me. But what he wants me to do is not only trust in him, he wants me to choose a side and be all in on the side that we choose. That's what we need to do. And the good news is, is that when we choose a side, there is success. And don't just think in terms of pornography, okay? There's a lot more dark things out there than pornography, okay? But the whole idea is when you and I choose a side, and we're all in on the side of Jesus, there is success. But let me also be honest with you from God's word, my own life, and from what I know about other people's life. Yes, there's going to be success. But there's also going to be failure. There's also going to be defeats. There's also going to be regrets. You and I cannot live in a world that is damaged by sin and live in bodies that bear the same stain. And living in a world like that, living in bodies like that, there's no way you and I can expect to live perfect lives. In our battle to do what is right, we're going to find ourselves doing some things that are wrong. There will be defeat. But at the end of our life, although we may have lost more battles than we care to admit, the wonderful thing is, we will have won the war. We'll win the war. But you got to choose a side. You got to choose a side. And that side has to be Jesus, and we have to be all in on his side. There's an urgency to this. There are too many young people whose lives are destroyed because they think they can be neutral. And I shouldn't just say young people. It's everyone. You can't be neutral. You've got to choose a side. And so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to individually bow in prayer and with our heads bowed out of respect for God, our eyes closed out of respect for one another. I want you to just pray right now and let God know that you're choosing his side. Let me help you with the words. If in your life there are failures and regrets that immediately come to your mind and they haven't been confessed to God, confess them. Accept his forgiveness. Thank him for it. And live in light of it. But let him know that as a believer you are going to choose the side of Jesus and be all in on his side. Thank him that he understands failure. He understands that we're not going to be perfect. But he takes great joy in the fact that we are choosing the side of Jesus. And then if you're here and you say, my need is not to choose Jesus, my need is to trust in Jesus. Well, that's something you need to do too. What separates us from Jesus is sin. Sin doesn't make us a terrible person. It just means we have a terrible problem. 
problem is God can't have any association with sin. If we have sin in our life, God cannot have us in his. But the good news is that Jesus took our sin and he died in our place. And when we're willing to admit our sin and trust in Jesus' death, we receive the eternal forgiveness of God. And if that's a need you have, trust in Jesus today. Don't say next time. Do it today. Father, thank you for your word. It is a joy to hear your word. What a blessing. But Lord, we want the greater blessing to be in our doing. Let our response be a conscious, intentional act of worship. And we ask this in the all-powerful name of Jesus. Amen.